to Rising. We have a wonderful show planned for you today. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. All right, let's get right into it. Have you joined Threads yet? <laughs> Not yet, but apparently I'm one of the only ones left behind. If you don't know already, Meta launched their Twitter rival platform called Threads last night. It's been described as a text-based version of Instagram. Meta built Threads as a new separate space for real-time updates and public conversations. CEO Mark Zuckerberg claimed the platform gained over 10 million users in just the first few hours of its existence. Per reporting from NBC, that number now exceeds 23 million. In his first tweet in over a decade, Zuckerberg poked fun at the similarity between the two platforms with that classic meme. <laughs> well, Thread's launch comes just days after Elon Musk announced a major overhaul to how users can access content on Twitter. Verified accounts are limited to reading 6,000 posts per day, Unverified accounts, 600 posts per day. New unverified accounts, 300 per day. So I had an appearance on Fox News this morning mm -hmm. at the early hour of 6.40 a.m. <laughs> so I've been up a, a while. So I did, in fact, have some time to... Um, you know, build like a massive Lego house and also to join <laughs> threads. Uh, as I was doing it, I was thinking, this is just kind of a bummer to do this again with another social media. I'm you not know, sure I need another one. So the bummer is starting anew, which I get. But how did you feel about the actual user interface, especially in light of some of the criticisms Musk have gotten over throttling tweets over the weekend and all of that stuff? It seemed fine. I, I just honestly, like, hopelessness and despair <laughs> consume me. Because in the past, I, I was trying to think, what is the last time a new social media app debuted and I used it actually regularly for some length of time? And the, the answer is Clubhouse, which I don't use at all now, but I did use somewhat regularly for a period of, I don't know, a few weeks, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. um, I was checking in on, you know, during the pandemic, that was the voice chat function mm -hmm. thing, kind of like what Twitter Spaces is now. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, that I, I was, but other than that, there's not a there's not a new one. You know, I joined uh, I joined what Mastodon or Blue Sky mm -hmm. or I mean I think I, I joined Parlor back in the day. I I joined all those things. I never you, you join it, you post once, and I and I joined. I started trying to use. I'm interested in Substack Notes, but I think it's most beneficial for people who are actually posting to Substack, reg Substack regularly, and that's just not where my, where I mean, our videos are right. on YouTube, the things I write are at reason.com. So well, I think for people like us in particular, who spend a lot of time kind of building up a following on an app like that, having a, an app that's identical, but you don't have the following can feel very right. demoralizing. I think for a, your more typical user, that might not be the case, and your priority might be yeah. having an app an app that works, which is not something that people can say of Twitter. I mean, it was really apocalyptic online over the weekend as people realized just how quickly got, they got through 600 posts or whatever they were throttled to, depending on their level of uh, subscription or non-subscription uh, over at Twitter. And it, it did really feel to a lot of folks like the death knell of the site. If Elon Musk is at a certain point forcing people off of his platform, and there were some theories about why he would do that. He you know, had an excuse that wasn't related to the technical capacities of the site, but other people who had engineering experience, et cetera, said that it had something to do with him scraping. not I don't paying. know what that means, though. Uh, people were hypothesizing that it had to do with him not paying his, um, basically, 
glorified cloud storage bill, uh -huh. and that basically had to limit the number of transactions content that people were able to view on the site because he had this um, payment dispute, which people, of course, were then making fun of because he is the wealthiest man in the world. But regardless of the reason, folks just want the website, which has been around since 2009, to continue just to function in these very basic ways, which it hasn't done on, in the Musk era, on top of not having some of the clarity about free speech and censorship that Musk said he was going to bring to the table. It's understandable to me why so many people would be happy to run into the arms of a Zuckerberg-backed app, because whatever you want to say about Zuckerberg, you know, functionality of his, of his software, of Instagram, of Facebook, has rarely been uh, the focus of scrutiny, unlike over at well, Twitter. Well, sure, but, you know, let's get into the free speech and censorship issues. Uh, I'm already seeing, I'm seeing a lot of complaints from, uh, you know, free speech motivated independent people. Some of them, you know, personally loyal to Elon Musk, obviously, or connected to the Twitter files, things like that. Um, however, it does look like um, I, some of the, uh, what is his name, um, the Twitter account, DC Drano, uh, his real name is... Roland O'Handley, Jack O'Handley, something like that. Look it up right now. And this is a popular, very pro-Trump uh, uh, Twitter account. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there are screenshots of him trying to join uh, threads, and it says, or I know, I think it's people trying to follow this person now on threads, and you get like, are you sure you want to follow this person? You know, this person has been associated with bad behavior or something like that. So, you know, if it's if we're importing the old kind of um, uh, the way Facebook does things and, and Instagram, you know, the outsourcing of, of fact-checking to these activist websites that can that can hide your posts if they want mm -hmm. or hide the image, you know, all of that is going to be, um, you know, frustrating for those of us who just, who want both functionality, the, maybe, what about the functionality of a Zuckerberg product with some of the free speech commitments, if not in practice, that Elon or those two. I mean, that's the thing. That sounds great. That if right? not in practice, just give is, us that. If not in practice, is a big caveat because the reality is that despite some promises that a lot of us were looking forward to being fulfilled. Rogan O'Handley, that's his name. Go you on. know, Elon Musk has censored journalists that were writing stories that he found disfavorable to himself. He let Kanye back on the app and then censored him again for behavior while abhorrent that did not actually violate the terms and conditions of Twitter. He did the same thing to Alex Jones, who, again, I find what he says to be reprehensible with respect to lying about the uh, Parkland shooting, but he didn't actually violate the terms and conditions of Twitter. And Elon Musk himself said that the reason that he chose to ban him had to do with his own personal experience with losing a child and not the actual terms and conditions in uh, um uh, generalized rules that the normal people have to abide by. Mm -hmm. That on top of still having absolutely no transparency uh, about the shadow banning that many people still feel like they experience on the site has made a lot of people say, well, okay, I would love to like have the choice between the free speech site and the site that works. But right now I have the choice between a non-free speech site that also doesn't work and a free speech site that seems, at least so far, to be functioning beautifully. And a lot of people have been writing about how it is reminiscent. It makes them feel very much like they're 
on old Twitter in the way that old Twitter was a place where people could effectively share information and feel like they weren't just getting spammed with the um, the accounts that were ideologically aligned with Elon Musk. So he's been he's well, privileged, but he's privileged blue checks. And most people who pay for Twitter are people who do so because they want to support Elon Musk. And that has made the character of one's own feed less about what your personal interests are and more about what Elon Musk's interests are. I mean, I think where this is heading is that if it does take off, you're just gonna have one site that's a feel-good liberal echo chamber where there isn't. There doesn't appear to be a lot of censorship because, honestly, the the right wing people just aren't even participating on it. And then, and another site that has some of the uh, quirks of the uh, a very unique leadership ownership style of Elon Musk and and lighter moderation, though, with the exceptions of the cases you point out, the you know personal things that Elon Musk interferes in. We're going to have right wing people on one site. And liberals on another, and uh, we're just going to have two, you know, two of every. You know, people have different. Um, your fast food shop, where where you where you want to buy clothes. You know, you don't want woke beer. You want woke beer. Like everything is splitting into camps, right? So why wouldn't the social media experience be any different? Well, I don't know if it's quite going to work that way, because um, because part I, of the fun of social media is yelling at people on the other side. Well, well no, because <laughs> Elon Musk isn't. I mean, the Twitter as it is was a $44 billion investment that immediately diminished in value by half, if not more diminished at this point. And whether or not Elon Musk genuinely is committed to this altruism of having a free speech forum, continuing to sink his own personal money into what has become a money pit, trying desperately to figure out ways to monetize it in, in ways that aren't actually working, advertisers increasingly are going to want to flee if there really is a viable alternative where people are more active because that's where the bulk of the journalists like it or not, Twitter is driven by it, how populated it is, not by the general public. It has, I think, very low, like 3% of the public is actually on Twitter, but much lower we percentage. Can, we looked at the number. How many? It was We weren't looking at percentages. Million? We were looking at raw numbers. But yeah, the point I, I just wanted to try to make here was that um, if... Tw Twitter uh, has never been popular because many people were on it. It was popular because of who was on it. And that matters to Elon Musk and other people and advertisers. People liked the idea that you could go on Twitter and interact with politics and have an effect on politics and have a hashtag trend and have a movement elevate. And if he can't keep enough of those people who are doing that on Twitter, whether or not you like those people ideologically, that's who he makes money off of. And I don't know how sustainable, how long Twitter is even going to last yeah, I mean, if it faced with the real competitor. I think that's just all over now. And there's a, gonna, they're, a trying, they're attempting a different business model. Um, it's going to be a, conser a platform for conservative and alternative news. I think that's the vision for it, with people like Tucker, Daily Wire people, et cetera, what they live, they streamed in some sense, the What is a Woman documentary on Twitter. Um, I think it's going to be a, a space for, for alternative, conservative, right-wing content, speech, media, et cetera. And obviously, you have companies that can thrive in that space. Maybe it, Twitter it can, will, maybe it won't. It won't Musk, be anything like the way it was before. I think the question is, can Musk profit off of it? Not whether or not you can get a bunch of hits on a video, which is... Wonderful, but that has always been Twitter's fundamental issue. Even when Jack was CEO of, of Twitter, how do you monetize a site like this? And it's been, you know, he had an advertising model. And that's a model that Elon Musk has largely sabotaged, self-sabotaged, right, although he's trying to, a, to move back in that to, direction. He's trying to move into a subscriber model. 
I mean, I'm not saying it's, I don't know that it's going to work, but conservative media ventures can be profitable for the people involved in it in certain circumstances. I don't have any reason to think Twitter can't necessarily be successful. Um, but I think there is something lost. It's a little bit of a shame if we all have to kind of ideologically segregate into your like, oh, this is your home, especially for those of us who don't feel like we fit so neatly into one idiot. I mean, you don't either, given the choices I just laid out, the right-wing site or the, or the, the liberal establishment right, site. Right, but I guess You're the point like that I'm that making either. is it doesn't feel to me like it's becoming a liberal establishment site. It just feels like it's a site where normal people who don't want to see, like, swastikas and stuff like that are aggregate, like celebrities. LeBron James coming out saying he, he didn't want to be on Twitter anymore after being forced to pay for Twitter Blue. I mean, I don't think of that as an ideological issue. It's like, I want to be where LeBron James is. I want to be where the pop culture figures and actors and singers and stuff that I follow are. And I do think the part of the problem is that Elon Musk has tried to politicize Twitter so much that he's chased away people who, that were normies and honestly didn't care about any of this. Well, it's been only a few hours, so we'll see All right. what, the shape, what the site <laughs> shapes up to be. And I also have a radar today. I'll tell you what that's all about coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, the federal government's vast and disconcerting campaign to curb politically disfavored speech on social media has finally encountered a setback. On Tuesday, District Court Judge Terry Doughty ruled against the Biden administration in a pivotal free speech case brought by Republican attorneys general on behalf of individuals punished by social media companies at the behest of the federal officials. Now, as my colleague at Reason Magazine, Eric Bame, noted, quote, the underlying case alleges that coordination between government officials and social media companies, including Meta, the owners of Facebook and Instagram, and Twitter routinely silenced opinions that challenged the mainstream narrative about the COVID-19 pandemic and other hot button issues. That case is well supported by an ocean of evidence, including the various disclosures within the Twitter files, a series of independent journalist reports, and also the Facebook files, my own investigation into federal pressure on social media companies. Now, the hundreds of messages sent by employees of the FBI, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Homeland Security, other agencies, and the White House to moderators at Twitter, Meta, and Google make clear that the federal government pushed the platforms to suppress dissenting viewpoints on a whole host of topics. Dottie's ruling is a preliminary injunction that bars federal agencies from engaging in many, though not all, of these behaviors. So the outcome has alarmed mainstream outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times, whose reports included quotations from internet security experts fretting about the federal government's diminished ability to police speech online. Guests on CNN and MSNBC took an even more apocalyptic tone. CNN legal analyst Eli Honig assailed the, uh, quote, aggressive, far-reaching ruling, while NBC News reporter Ryan Riley described a world free of federal pressure on social media platforms as one that, quote, we wouldn't want to live in. Riley also fundamentally underappreciated the scope of the pressure campaign, telling MSNBC viewers that, quote, it's not as though the FBI has been going in and saying, hey, take down that post. No, seriously, let's watch what he said. 
through kind of the parameters of this injunction. Yeah, I mean, so it basically has some limits on what exactly the FBI, I think, most essentially is, is able to do. And I think that, you know, you have to take a step back and acknowledge what the reality is about how the FBI has been interacting with this. And just look at January 6th itself, for example, right? It's not as though the FBI has been going in and saying, hey, take down this post, hey, take down this post. That's what they're alleging, but there's just not a lot of evidence to support that. And basically, we've had a situation where some politicians are making any contact between social media companies and the FBI or law enforcement seem problematic in some way. Au contraire, despite what Riley just claimed, the FBI has done precisely that. For instance, the FBI frequently flagged joke tweets about the 2020 election, the election date, asking moderators at Twitter to take them down. The White House itself did the very same thing. As Dowdy points out in his ruling, White House Digital Strategy Director Rob Flaherty personally appealed to Twitter to remove an account that parodied Biden's granddaughter, Quote, this is from Flaherty, please remove this account immediately. 45 minutes later, Twitter did just that. So if the judge's decision prevents federal employees from engaging in such heavy-handed muzzling, that would be a welcome relief. Unfortunately, there's reason to doubt that the decision will meaningfully constrain the feds. That's because the judge also drew up a list of actions that are, quote, not prohibited by this preliminary injunction. And this list could reasonably be read to permit the very sort of behavior, jawboning, that has produced the censorship. The judge's terms, for instance, allow the federal government to notify social media companies about threats to national security, criminal efforts to suppress voting, foreign attempts to influence elections, and communications that intend, quote, to detect, prevent, or mitigate malicious cyber activity. It's worth recalling that prior to COVID-19, many of the communications between the feds and the platforms, well, they concerned precisely those subjects, purported foreign influence, malicious activity, etc. When national intelligence officials cautioned social media companies about the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story, for instance, they cited the threat of foreign election interference, efforts to purge social media of so-called Russian bots, which was in actuality a crackdown on legitimate speech expressed by real Americans, well, those were conducted under the auspices of malicious activity prevention. Will Duffield, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, who I talked to yesterday, he is similarly concerned that Dottie's ruling might not make enough of a difference. He tells me that the top half of the injunction reads like, quote, oh, a complete and total shutdown of government communication with social media platforms until courts figure out what's going on. But the bottom half includes exceptions wide enough to include many of the most controversial government communications with platforms. Duffield said he would like to see federal legislators federal legislation that mandates disclosure, forcing government actors to be transparent about their communications with social media companies so that they can be held accountable, even sued, if their conduct crosses the line into censorship. He says, quote, it's good to see courts taking job owning seriously, but this preliminary injunction illustrates how difficult it is to draw clear lines that prohibit government bullying without blocking merely informative speech. Hmm. In the meantime, the Biden administration has declared that it will appeal this ruling. Federal officials will not willingly surrender their censorship tools, and the fight to constrain the state's ability to silence the rest of us, well, that fight is just beginning. And so I talked to this policy analyst at Cato yesterday, and he said a number of things you actually said about this yesterday, the need for transparency being very key, because then 
the people can respond or you know hold their elected representatives accountable or put pressure on their elected representatives to hold the agencies accountable if we know what's going on and and you've criticized and I agree with you that you know the the way this has come about I'm, I'm very Glad that things like the Twitter files has, have helped give us much more information, yeah. but it was selective. We we know we haven't gotten the entire picture. What if you know there was legislation that you know got the, if 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 uh, if someone at the FBI you know sends an email to a moderator at Twitter and says you know we think you should be aware of some list of accounts for some reason. What if that immediately gets entered into the public record so we know that they're saying? I think. Maybe that, that, that now that wouldn't that wouldn't stop it, but at least we'd know about it. Might right. be the best we can do, and, and would be an improvement over. Again, this is a first step because it's clear some of the activity we're very concerned about could still theoretically pass muster. Yeah, under I, ha this list. I have a few issues here. One is that the Twitter files was a valuable glimpse into the kinds of content moderation decisions that are being made. But it was only a glimpse for two reasons. One is that my understanding is that the bulk of content moderation decisions are made algorithmically, not by people making individual choices about tweets or being informed about problematic tweets by the government or anybody else or by users who self-report tweets. And two, that even focusing on the kind of documentary evidence that we have in the Twitter files, the journalists who work so hard to bring us reporting from that effort only were given access to a very small sliver of documents, even from the uh, Jack days. So I think Matt Taibbi said he had access or had looked through something like 90,000 documents, which from a you know former corporate lawyer perspective is not an especially large document review. And given that Twitter has existed since 2009, you know the 2009 through 2022 trove to search through, it, it's a drop in the bucket especially since Musk doesn't seem to have disclosed what the search terms were specifically that generated the files that were, the journalists had access to. And there was no specification in any kind of privilege log to talk about what was withheld from what the journalists were able to look through. So there's a lot of unknowns there about how much more there is to know. And the other issue is we know nothing about what Twitter's content moderation behavior has been like, other than what we can see, right? We can see him censoring the Elon Jet sites. We can see the, the inconsistencies around some of the high-profile people who were censored and let back and then censored again. But we are not given any transparency about what Twitter is doing now. I think a lot of people have faith that Elon Musk is doing the right thing on the basis of him having revealed the Twitter files. But it could also be the case that the Twitter files are providing somewhat of an umbrella for his own behavior now and going forward. What mechanism is there in place to ensure that he actually isn't continuing a lot of the same policies of yesteryear, especially given some of the concerns about his statements of how he's very willing to bend the knee to authoritarian governments like Modi in a ways that are go beyond what Jack was willing to do in that exact same situation in terms of being more censorious or more solicitous to those kind of authoritarian um, speech regimes. So I, I think that this is all well and good, but we need to keep our eye on the prize and remember that the work that the Twitter file started was just the tip of the iceberg and that if we're genuinely invested in having a free platform where people of all ide ideological stripes are making decisions that undermine the speech of an important public forum. This can't be an explicitly partisan effort, and this can't be an effort where we just happen to trust the billionaire because he said the right things sometimes to keep our interests at heart. There have to be neutral mechanisms that make all of these people transparent and accountable. Mm. I'm, uh, I, I agree with that. I, I'm. Uh 
furious with the lack of neutrality from so many um, in the mainstream and establishment media, you know, weighing in on this judge's decision, which we're, you know, we're, we're finding some fault with some of the reasoning. We're saying, well, here's why it's not going to cover this, and it's a difficult issue. But from all the, the cable news segments, CNN and MSNBC on this, we're all just Oh, yeah, experts say they're going to have a lot harder time stopping you from seeing misinformation now. It's just so breathless and hysterical and just so credulous yeah. of this category of national security expert person. That person can do no wrong, and they, they tell us that this is bad, so we, we agree. It's, um, I think it's so unhelpful for having a nuanced, fruitful Absolutely. conversation about how to genuinely improve these platforms. Can I ask you about this, Robbie? I've seen some people, um, including Schellenberger, uh, tweet about whether or not Congress should revoke Section 230 for companies that aren't sufficiently transparent. And in the past, we've talked on this show about how pernicious the threat of the government has been to revoke Section 230 for sites that it felt like what right. weren't attacking misinformation, right, or basically using Section 230 as a cudgel in that way. You know, even if we disagree with the government's, um, with, with let's, let's say, how Meta might be running its version of Twitter, what do you make of using the Section 230 threat as a cudgel in this context? I, I oppose it. That's exactly what, I mean, that's, that's part of the argument against the social media censorship regime has been, I mean, Joe Biden and his deputies threatened to take Section 230 away from the sites unless they did more to suppress COVID contrarianism. Yeah. That was wrong and bad. And also, the, the immediate, whatever you think about, if you're mad at the companies, you don't like that they have this protection, the immediate effect of changing Section 230 or taking it away would be a vast silencing, would be that the platforms would have to censor more speech because they they can't just they yeah. can't take on increased liability. Yeah. It's not a pointing out the double standard that they have this protection that other media companies don't have is fine. But again, I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm not obsessed with the concept of like defamation being protected anyway. And I would sooner extend this protection to other entities than take it away from the ones that have it. Because taking yeah. it away would just Again, effectively, it would silence millions of us. Well, Schellenberger is a friend of the show, and I look forward to having the opportunity to talk to mm -hmm. him about what he means here. But it is concerning to me that this looks like, yeah. um, you know, based on politics, deciding that a tool, which I think we agree was a bad one to use to try to get your way on these apps, um, suddenly being seen as like the right thing to do, revo right. revoking Section 230 when it's attacking an app like, say, Meta Meta's app, which one might not right. like for political well, right. reasons. Right. And he said he wants to do that and or impose transparency. Yeah. I would just say, so let's not take away Section 230. And I, I would support Congress. Congress should impose the transparency on the government side of it, because that is that would be less subject to, I mean, if you impose transparency on the company, you could, sure, they, company could gonna, sue you that's for That's going to miss some stuff you. too, right? Because companies make independent decisions. I mean, part of what yeah. was so funny, not funny, but ironic about the Trump censorship, uh, Trump pulling Trump off of Twitter decision was, or no, it was the, sorry, the Hunter Biden decision was that the Twitter files revealed that it wasn't that the government had to say, take the Hunter Biden files down. It was that they had done so much work leading up to it talking about the risk of election interference and Russian yeah. interference, that there was, there was, it was already incepted but that's into the what brains of but, the meta uh, but people. That even, but that stuff is what I want to see. I want to sure. see those kinds of communications. Sure. But also there's, there's the kind of the argument that 
Twitter was this liberal bastion and that everyone who worked there was inclined toward content moderation decisions that were just more liberal in nature is also not going to be captured. Any natural sure, bias but, is not going to be captured And that was my that notion, sort of but that notion was gradually undermined by seeing yeah. so many uh, email exchanges between moderators and the FBI where they say, oh my God, more of this nonsense. Yeah. So I would like to see more of that going forward. And we will have more rising right after this. The popular liberal Twitter account with the name Erica Marsh, which gained more than 130,000 followers in just eight months for her liberal takes, is likely fake, according to the Washington Post. The self-described proud Democrat does not show up on any local phone or voting records. And according to the Washington Post, the Biden presidential campaign, where she claimed she worked as a field organizer, has no record of her. She also claimed to have volunteered at the Obama Foundation, which also has no record, record of her. Marsh's account has been popular among conservatives who've regularly mocked her postings. In response to the SCOTUS affirmative action decision last week, the Erica Marsh account tweeted, Today's Supreme Court decision is a direct attack on black people. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system, which is exactly why affirmative action-based programs were needed. On her TikTok account, there are copies of her tweets posted, but no videos of her speaking or showing her face. According to the Washington Post, the three selfies she had posted on Twitter, quote, bear the hallmarks of digital manipulation. Senior researcher at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, John Scott Routon, said, I strongly suspect this person doesn't exist. The Washington Post brought questions about the account to employees at Twitter, and the account was suspended on Sunday. So this is a case of people on the right being a little gullible. Um, mm. so this was a you know resistance lib account. It sound very self-parodying. Um, so it was mostly retweeted by a lot of right-wing people mm -hmm. being like, can you believe Democrats actually believe this? Candace Owens, I remember, got a bite at this particular affirmative action apple. I mean, a lot of people in particular were dragging the affirmative action tweet, and with good reason. My perspective was, if it were, even if it were real, that one person saying something blatantly stupid and kind of racist doesn't necessarily reflect on a broader kind of left-leaning ideology and shouldn't be taken as the rule anyway. But it's doubly pernicious to consider that this person might not even have existed or might have even been a creation by a more conservative-leading person to get exactly the kind of response um, kind of creating your own libs of TikTok, your own libs of Twitter, because there aren't libs that are embarrassing enough on their own. Yeah, you've got to be careful not to fall for these kinds of things, because you end up looking kind of dumb. <laughs> I mean, so what do you make of this? I mean, we talk a lot I mean, about— People are just willing to believe, you know, the worst things about their political opponents. This happens on—and this is, you know, people on—very partisan people on both sides are easy marks for stuff like this. Um, but I, specifically, what do you make about it in the context of the conversation we've been having about disinformation? I mean, it obviously is true that in a digital space, you can do things like, I mean, the, the issue with their images, people, the, the reason why folks are saying it's suspicious or has the hallmarks of digital manipulation is because it's the same face and all of her pictures making the same expression and like the backgrounds seem to be tweaked and small things seem to be tweaked. You know, we, with the innovation of AI, we have people using those audio dubbing things to make duets between, you know, Cardi B and Duke Ellington and Prince. And, you know, you can take people from the grave and have, you know, Prince rapping uh, Megan, Megan the Stallion lyric. And you can do all of these things with, with deep That's fakes. Right. 
wasn't there this issue with an advertisement in the Republican primary where there was an issue of using a, a deep fake of Donald Trump in an ad that people were very upset about? I mean, this stuff is happening. Um, so there is, I and think— And it's a, not prevent—it's only going to get worse. It's—we're going to reach a tipping point where you're just not going to be able to uh, trust the authenticity. Right now, it's still operating at the level that I think only gullible people and, frankly— the yeah, elderly, it, the less tech-savvy, are likely to fall for these things. But look at this. I, I thought this was—I had no reason to not believe this was real, because there are liberals who say dumb stuff like this all the time, right? And the the issue I was thinking about was that the, there was a DeSantis attack ad that used fake AI images of Trump embracing Fauci. That, for obvious reasons, you know, Trump supporters were very upset at, for, for yeah, legitimate I, reasons. So what do you do? Elon Musk They should made the, cry more, like Trump has never— <laughs> sure. Trump's people would never— <laughs> but come on, Robbie. I mean, these these kinds of things can have an impact on people's understanding politically of what's going on. There was a race in Michigan for governor back in 2018 where there was a progressive candidate who was uh, a brown guy, South Asian, I believe, and running against Gretchen Whitmer. There was a third party that entered the race who was also South Asian, who had a, an Indian-sounding name, who had this horrible story about how he had abused dogs. Right, he he was a a big pharma guy and had these labs, and there was this dog abuse scandal. And what was the, Anthony Fauci was running for stop. governor? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. And when when the leftist candidate would ask people, you know, well, how are you voting? Are you going to support yeah, me? Sure. They kept saying, No, you abuse dogs. So there was this very purposeful. You can in, incept stories that really affect the outcome in close races I mean, by using politics. fake news. As you know, that's just politics. I mean, that's, that's his oldest time. That's not, like, the, the desire to do that is going to continue, and the technology is, is just going to change, and people have to be discerning, and you have to trust the people, and reporters should do the work of earning credibility when, when they say, you know, hopefully our viewers trust us when we say, this is actually fake. You should not believe this. They trust us because they know that we... Are fair-minded people who try to right, do the Robbie, best what, job. What, about but what the, else can you the do? The adage, you know, uh, lie goes around the world twice before the truth gets out the door, or, what, or whatever that. I mean, is well, there then we're all going to be just besieged by lies and never know what's true, and all going to become stupid but, and conspiratorial. But that's not <laughs> right. what happens. We generally become more educated over time, and probably this is exactly why there are people who, even if they disagree with the way that quote-unquote misinformation has been handled because what constitutes misinformation can be so subjective, will agree that there is a real issue here. I do think it's an issue if in a Republican primary, one of the candidates is doctoring images or using doctored images to spread lies about their opponent. Now, the question is that I'm interested in is what to do about it. The other person says those are doctored images. They are not real. And you got to trust people to make up their so minds. At, what, what else can you any, do? At any point, should there be any consequences for a candidate that perhaps willingly and intentionally, as opposed to accidentally, continues to try to do a kind of false advertising to the public? Is Elon, Elon Musk right to censor this account, even if it is a fake parody account, did he make the right decision to suspend this account? Well, I think it, the policy, I believe, on Twitter is that if it's a parody account, it has to say it's a parody account. So, like, he has, he is stipulated, I think that's a new rule under Elon Musk. What is the line between a parody account as in, hi, I'm, um, you know, uh, 
hip hop Andrea Bocelli or whatever mm. versus I'm just creating a personality on the uh, online. I'm not pretending to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to represent myself as the real Starbucks account or and say, you know, we're we're firing Howard Schultz, we're unionizing the whole company, right? I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to confuse anybody about being a real person, but I am creating a fake identity. Is that discouraged or prohibited by the guidelines? I mean, it, we can always craft some sort of edge case for social media rules, but I don't think it's wrong to want parody accounts to label themselves necessarily. But is this a parody account parody. is the question. There are so many Twitter accounts that are anonymous, that have anime avatars as yeah. their logo, that are big and popular and we feel like we know them, you know, maple cocaine, like these big accounts. But we don't know who they are. We don't know what their real ideology is. There's a difference is. between posting a photo, like that's a real, that woman, and she's a stock photo image maybe or something, mm -hmm. but that's not her. But if you had like a, I don't know, like, an, like a, like a, like a Pikachu or something, you're obviously, that's not you. I don't know. It's, I don't it's, know. A, it's a difficult question. It's hard question. things to work out. It's a difficult question. But I, but I genuinely, I, I generally would, you know, the broader question, what do we do about this? The issue of having a view that this is a problem that some kind of centralized authority must solve becomes, well, then what, you know, when, when you, you have the Hunter Biden laptop case where, where everyone in power or with expertise assures you and the media and then they enforce it that this is fake or manipulated, manipulated or not true and they get it wrong, there's just such a loss of credibility. Absolutely. And I do think the community notes function is well it's served. It's great. Here, but in this scenario... Community, uh, they, they got, you would, you would appreciate this, they got um, uh, Josh Hawley yesterday, I, I mean, I'm sure it was some intern or something, his account tweeted some quote uh, that it was... Oh, about the founding fathers yeah, and slavery not, or something like that? Oh, it was no. about religion. It was like it the was founding the, fathers... The importance of religion. Love, and, yeah. I'm like, I mean, all you have to do it is was read a, a book like to know how wrong later. that was. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I do think that in this scenario, I don't think that the community notes would have found this. Now, once the Washington Post digs into this story, reports that this is likely not a real person, people can add the community notes. But this seems like a role of journalism. And I'm, I'm skeptical that if this particular account weren't so embarrassing to liberals, that the Washington Post would ever have investigated whether it was real or not. And that gives me some pause. Would we not have? Would we? Do we only know the truth here because there happen to be powerful, ideal, ideologically aligned institutions who wanted to get to the bottom of why this person was being so embarrassing to their ideology? Well, we're not going to live in a perfect world. It, there's going to cases are going to go forward that we miss or that you assume it's true or genuine. Um, everyone should just be cautioned to be a little bit more careful online and not believe everything you see necessarily, or look, you know, look for look for the hallmarks of manipulated or fake or, you know, like some weird text appearing or yeah, like even also, that image, it does look manipulated. And don't put your closely. whole, don't put your whole political project on the idea of dunking on somebody else. I think you can make arguments about why you don't agree with affirmative action, yeah. why you support the decision that didn't involve pointing at someone and, and just doing a ha-ha Ralph Williams. <laughs> Indeed. More rising right after this. There's some new developments on the investigation of a powdery white substance found at the White House on Sunday. According to the Washington Post, the small bag was in fact cocaine located on the ground floor where guests touring the West Wing are told to leave 
their cell phones. In a press briefing on Wednesday, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters the Secret Service is continuing to investigate the matter and the person or persons behind this remain at large. Let's listen. Where this was discovered uh, is a heavily traveled area where many White House uh, West Wing, I should be even more specific, uh, West Wing visitors uh, come through uh, this particular area. I just don't have anything more to share. It is under investigation by the Secret Service. This is in their purview, and so we're going to allow uh, certainly the investigation to continue, and we have confidence that the Secret Service will get to the bottom of this. Meanwhile, an official familiar with the investigation told Politico that the likelihood of the White House catching the cocaine culprit is not very high. Yeah, that feels right. Yeah, so look, the... the I mean, it's a guest. What are they going to do? Sure. If it is an area where outside visitors, of which there are many at the White House every day, are trafficking through and are asked to put down their belongings while they're being checked or what have you, this is a non-issue. It is a little difficult for me to imagine, and I would love to hear more details from the White House about what this room is, what exactly is the Sarah and Ariel, because it was, white powder was identified. Remember, first white powder was identified, and subsequently it was tested and found to be cocaine. So this is not a trace amount. This is an observable amount of cocaine that ended up in this area. Right. I assume it was in a baggy type situation. It's not like they dusted the area for powder. Well, I. I, 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 I don't know. I think I thought they found it in a bag. Okay, sorry. Even if it's in a bag, even more so. This That's is what a I'm lot. picturing in it's my a, head. Maybe I made just a lot. In the details. It's just a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, I, again, the fact that it's in a public area for many, many reasons, I think, mm -hmm. kills the speculation that it, it, it was right. Hunter Biden. We, we believe that Hunter Biden was in the public part of the White House doing which, cocaine. Which, again, was only speculation because he is known to have struggled At, in with the addiction. past. Right. right. But this hasn't stopped, I think... A lot of no, conservative but also speculation. He was to, wasn't he known to use um, crack cocaine? Not. I, I don't know. Or, I, I, I don't, I don't know if one's habits are so specific that they don't, di don't diversify uh, depending on what's available, et cetera. Um, but it, you know, I, I it, the, her her body language in that is is very interesting because this does seem like a slam dunk. Of obviously, this has nothing to do with the Bidens. This is mm -hmm. specious slander. This is people wanting to um, just get a, a a punch in at a candidate that they don't support. But it it does. It, 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 she yeah. didn't come off that that way. I mean, they don't. I, I they don't want the associate. So you know, it's a it's a. Shame they didn't find it in the Rose Garden. They could have blamed a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> a reporter left it behind. I mean, so what do you make? I, I saw a number of conservatives continuing to double down after this, saying, you know, there's all of this evidence that Hunter Biden has been Who? behaving. Are they actually, conservatives are actually saying that? Oh, you're saying that maybe it's another one of these fake accounts? I, I, I haven't seen, I've seen jokes about it. I, I haven't seen a lot of... Ser but I could be wrong. Maybe I've missed it. No, I saw. Are there serious suggestions? I saw that one video going down around in particular of the Bidens on a on the like balcony area on the front mm -hmm. of the White House, um, and Hunter Biden kind of walks behind Jill Biden, and you see him. You know, he's behind her, mm -hmm. but you see him kind of bring his hands to his face and then walk off behind her, um, like. like going like this. And so everyone, you know, it's just what this moment has done was given, oh. is given people an opportunity to 
I think, remind people of Hunter Biden's kind of personal struggles, even if it isn't linked directly to this discovery sure. in the White House. Which, again, are his personal struggle. A lot of people struggle with drug addiction, and it should be treated as a medical issue, not a criminal issue. The reason it's important with Hunter is that it's part of a pattern of—we're worried about potential um, double standards in how he's been treated by the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. given his famous father, um, whether he, you know, he got a much more lenient deal. Everyone would be entitled to this leniency, not just him, and whether that leniency was, in fact, because they, don't want to, they didn't want to look the authorities didn't want to look more closely at legal matters involving him because it would point to a broader history of financial impropriety or or you know or that roped in, his attempt to rope his father in to whatever right. influence game he was playing with uh, the Chinese, the Ukrainians, Burisma, etc. I also do think it is you know I might have expected that uh, trafficked areas of the White House in particular were under constant security camera surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that whoever is responsible needs to have their face smeared across uh, the, the, the news. Um, but the idea that it's impossible to figure out who it was, if it were, was in fact a baggie that was dropped during a security check, is a little confusing as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think, unless it was right. You would, if it were powder, if it were just yeah. traces that kind of fell out of somebody's bag, if in it the, were like what do you mean? Like but if it was a bag, powder don't collect in such number. I'm having, you know, I'm having okay. a hard time imagining so powder collecting in such a way with absent a baggie or some kind of vessel that so it gets noticed. I, I recently watched uh, a, a series on Netflix called Halston about a designer who was apparently was very big in the 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. um, who was famously, you know, a party boy in the studios, you know, 54 or whatever. And in one of the scenes as he's struggling with addiction toward the end of his life, his phone stops working, his landline stops working. And when the repairman comes, he screws off the end of the telephone and the whole receiver is just filled with cocaine. And it comes, they, they realize that over the years he's been doing cocaine while on the phone and little bits have been falling and falling and falling in. So when they unscrew it, like a whole mound of powder falls out onto the table and it's a kind of a wake up call moment of, oh, maybe I need to get well, this under still control. In, it's still in a collected... <laughs> And this isn't science. Like, yeah. This isn't a historical record or anything. It's just a TV show. But, you know, I, I understand. It seems to me that if you're a heavy user, you know, there's mm -hmm. apparently trace amounts of cocaine on every dollar in America. All of these kinds of statistics about how you can find trace elements of stuff all over the place. Because people used to make dollars no. with cocaine. Because people use it. Because for people use it to snort cocaine, Robbie. I can't believe that. <laughs> On such at, at such levels that every dollar and what is not I'm not I'm not being literal here, but it's okay. very common, or at least it was at a certain point, very common to find trace amounts of cocaine on dollars for that reason. Probably in the Halston era, that was true. Um, so it, to me, it seemed like it, I could understand why it would be difficult to trace if it really were just trace amounts. If it were a baggie, presumably that like fell out and was identified somewhere, I'd be curious to see if that were caught in any kind of camera. And if not, what exactly is going on from a security perspective right. in these public visitor areas uh, of the White and House? And as I said, the securities people miss stuff all the time. 
at uh, this is airport style security. Airport style security sure. misses, misses stuff. Prison security misses stuff. People smuggle things in and out of prisons. Um, like it happens. Uh, again, it's not. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe this is I'm the only one thinking this. It's not like the biggest deal ever. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not a weapon. It's not a. It's not a pathogen. It's, no. It's it's, it's not a drug that deal. I don't even think should be illegal. It's not I the guess biggest you don't deal. Have any business bringing it into the White House, but I mean, if you just I don't think it, I, I wouldn't care. If you really do think it's think you know it not it should be legal, then it's yeah. akin to bringing a pack of cigarettes to the White House. You're going to use sure. it at some point during the day. Why wouldn't you have it on your person? Sure. Um, just FYI, most banknotes have traces of cocaine on them. This has been confirmed by studies yeah. done in several countries. In 1994, the U.S. Ninth Circuit of Appeals determined that in Los Angeles, out of every four banknotes, on average, more than three are tainted by cocaine or another illicit drug. That is wild to me. I, I would just think new money is entering circulation rapidly enough, but maybe not. I think people like to use the new bills in particular. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. Who knows? We're two Pollyannas. What tell do we it, know? Tell us in the comments if you have any special knowledge of this kind of thing. More rising right after this. Protests have been raging across France as part of an uprising against police brutality. This latest demonstration comes on the heels of the June 27th police killing of 17-year-old Nahel M., a descendant of Algeria. However, a recent article in Jagabin contends the French riots are a result of miserable conditions in France. Here to tell us more about her reporting in Jacobin and what's happening on the ground in France is doctorate student and researcher Marianne Bovely. Marianne, so mu uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. So tell us what in your uh, impression is actually going on uh, right now. Uh, obviously, we have a very um, mixed picture uh, in the U.S. I, th I think it's not clear and is not being reported on by U.S. media outlets with a lot of clarity. So what, what do you think is the real story? So uh, a few days ago, a young uh, teenager, he was 17, was uh, shot down by a policeman. Uh, he was driving a car in order to bring his uh, little brother to an exam. And he didn't have the right to drive a car. And when the policeman told him to, that he wanted to control the car, um, there was uh, an increase of uh, violence. And uh, so the video shows that uh, the policeman put his gun on the head of the young man and he told him that he wanted he would sh shoot uh, if the so Nael didn't respond uh, clearly to, le to the police and the young boy so he, pa he panicked and uh, he tried to drive and then the policeman shot in his head and the young man uh, died and he was with two other people in the car who saw the the, the scene and so the police was also filmed by the young people. And then, uh, uh, so there was a video, and then there was a, the increase of uh, anger in the population and many, many uh, demonstrations on evening and mobilization. So uh, th there's a lot of parallels here to some of the incidents of police violence that we've uh, talked about uh, recently in the United States, the fact that it was caught on video, 
this kind of um, dueling perceptions of what happened here, people who were symp sympathetic to the 17-year-old uh, that was killed say that this was an, uh, a disproportionate use of force, a disproportionate use of threat, and that was perhaps racially motivated. The individual was of Algerian descent. Other people and the police officer has averred that he needed to—he uh, was afraid that the, the kid would drive the car and hurt people with the vehicle, and that was the threat that l l required him to uh, shoot and kill him. And But what is, what is different from, I think, what we have been understanding in the context of, say, the Black Lives Matter movement is the role that uh, Fr French cultural identity versus racial identity is understood differently in the country and how this is playing out as uh, there are, there's this division uh, among, you know, uh, North, North African, largely uh, French citizens uh, in terms of how they've been treated in the country and whether that, that discussion of different treatment has really seen as much uh, prevalence as we've had it in America. Can you unpack that a little bit? What, what's going on here from a kind of an ethnic, racial, cultural perspective? Okay. Uh, so first, I would like to give a little of the political con context, context. Two years ago, the government, so Emmanuel Macron, uh, he had the majority uh, at the parliament. He wanted to pass a bill saying that we couldn't film the policemen anymore. It means that if you are attacked, if you are hurt by the police, you couldn't prove it because you couldn't film the police. And there was a huge mobilization. And now we can still film the police thanks to the mobilization of association, political parties, etc. But there, were, there is always um, a desire for the government to endorse the position of the police rather than uh, the population. And uh, there was a second bill we forgot a little bit in France. It was passed in a... 2017 by so the Socialist Party when they were, uh, so before Emmanuel Macron, it was a bill who said that uh, in case of uh, uh, danger suspected by the police, they could use their gun and it was uh, voted by the, the parliament at that period. And since this uh, bill was uh, adopted, there is a huge increase of uh, use of gun by the police and also the, we see that more and more people are dying uh, when there is a police uh, intervention. And as you said uh, before, there is a question of uh, systemic racism, first in the population and also in the police, because the police is not disconnected from the population. And we also see uh, with their union and co corporatist movement that many people in the French uh, police are part of uh, uh, right-wing and the uh, radical uh, right-wing movement. And so mm -hmm. there is a problem of racism in the police, and there is a problem of the government with always endorsing the proposition of the police. Well, French President Emmanuel Macron is being scrutinized for threatening to suspend social media networks in an effort to crack down on the spread of violence and the unrest. Uh, how is this being received? He said, I'm looking at The Guardian, he said, we need to think about how young people use social networks, and when things get out of hand, we may have to regulate them or cut them off. Uh, how has that been received by the people of France? Uh, it seems totally absurd, because uh, there is a question, for, according to Emmanuel Macron, the problem is linked to the parents, how the parents are uh, going with their children. There is also the problem, he says, that one of the 
uh, root of the violence is about video games. There is no study saying that video games are creating violence in the population. It was never demonstrated, but to say that, and he also said that there were problems with uh, social uh, media, especially Snapchat, and also TikTok, and also Twitter. Um, but it's not the root of the, the, the problem we have. We have a problem for the population of public services, of uh, systemic discrimination and racism, and the government want to cut uh, in some uh, circumstances, social networks for some people, it seems totally absurd and stupid and also very authoritarian. Yeah, we've been from across the pond looking at the various protests in France over uh, labor issues, the uh, lack of garbage pickup, uh, the protesting the uh, uh, move to raise the retirement age. And here on the left, some of us look at it kind of enviously, because it takes quite a bit to get Americans on the street, whereas culturally in France, it seems like there's much more of an appetite for protest and civil disobedience in service of what people believe to be basic foundational rights. Um, and I wonder that whether—how uh, how this protest movement is being received, if there's still more sympathy for it, you think, in France than maybe the more um, disruptive or violent Black Lives Matter movements here uh, were received over time? Are people largely supportive of them, or because of the nature of this protest being about police brutality as opposed to economic rights, are we seeing more frustration um, in France? Um. I think there was a kind of a, there is a uh, an evolution uh, years after years and uh, about so the police brutality. I think there was a rupture during the the movement against the retirement bill because many people who were went in the streets. It was kind of a, I don't know teachers, some people who didn't who never have problem with police and they saw violence. Mm. And so we are in this uh, context of. Many people who are not, who don't have to face police violence, they saw it during the last months and they didn't understand why and they say, okay, maybe there is a problem with police. And now we have this situation, I think that more and more people are aware of uh, the, this problem, this systemic problem and the necessity to reform the police. And there is also on the political spectrum, on the uh, left wing, I think, um, the political party and are more and more aware of this question of uh, racism in the society and also in the police. And I think that there is a, uh, people are shocked by, by what's happening today. Yeah, that's fascinating, the idea that their experience with labor militancy has given people more sympathy with people who are protesting uh, police violence more specifically. Thank you so much, Marion, for joining us today. Thank you. New York Mayor Eric Adams has allegedly lied about a photo of a fallen police officer he claimed that he kept in his wallet for years. Adams, Adams has regularly told a story about how he's kept a photo of a fallen police officer who died in 1987, Officer Robert Venable, in his wallet for decades. But after the New York Times asked to see it, his staff 
created it, according to the New York Times. Quote, the employees were instructed to create a photo of Officer Venable, according to a person familiar with the request. A picture of the officer was found on Google. It was printed in black and white and made to look worn as if the mayor had been carrying it for some time, including by splashing some coffee on it, said the person who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of retribution. That's pretty funny. <laughs> So I used they to do this. They poured coffee on it and crumpled it up. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was obsessed with old treasure maps. Mm -hmm. And so I would do exactly this with a piece of A4 paper. I would draw a map. I would put some coffee or tea on it. I'm I would, listening. I would, I would burn the edges so it looked, had that like, uh, oh, I don't yeah. know, treasure map quality. Sometimes I would leave it in the back seat of the car so it would get yellowed in the window over time. I would really commit to this bit. And I'm really upset that the forensics that I did on A4 printer paper as a six, seven-year-old <laughs> were being deployed by people in the mayor's office to cover up a lie he's been telling about how much he loves some fallen police officer. I, uh, I too, make a lot of maps of fictional fantasy lands for my <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons I you might like adventures. That. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't try to, that's singeing the pages. I don't think I've done that since, yeah, since I was a kid. Um, one of my history teachers, I think, made us some, we pretend you were in some war, maybe it was the Revolutionary War, and you're writing a letter to your, to your family or something, and you, 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 I like spilled ketchup on it because it was like my Blood. dying letter. <laughs> anyway, so I understand the vibe, totally get it. <laughs> but this but, is the thing, uh, of all people to have to kind of do the stolen valor thing and demonstrate how much they love police officers, I mean, Eric Adams was a cop. Yeah. I'm sure is he knows people, I'm sure he knows police officers who were slain in the line right. of duty. Right, like why, um, this you don't need feels to like an unforced it error. With, yeah, well it just, it's a reminder that politicians lie. They lie, they lie, they lie, they lie, they lie. Just you impulsively. You need to lie about this. You could say, you could cite the story of someone you knew who died in the line of service and how sad it is and how bad it is and et cetera. You don't need to say you keep a picture of them. And you're, like that's a, it's a pretty bald, well, you're gonna get called out on it, right? Well, let's see the picture. Um, uh, my staff have to get my wallet. <laughs> It's so, it's, I mean, you're better off just saying, like, it, it, I carried it on so long it uh, fell apart. Right. Like my social security card. <laughs> was it, no, it's serious. It was in my wallet and it got all frayed and then, like, it, disintegrated and now I don't know what my social security number is. It, it's also, um, it's, it's a little weird. Like, there are very few people who I think it's normal to carry their photo around in your wallet. There are many people who I admire and respect but who I still wouldn't carry their oh, photo around in my wallet. You know, like I love my best friend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry his photo around in my wallet. That just starts to feel weird. I have a photo of my high school girlfriend in my wallet. Well. And I'm married well. to her now. Okay, I'm about to say, <laughs> oh, talk to your wife about that one. It's her. <laughs> okay, fair enough, but that's my point. You normally yeah. keep very intimate, your wife, your kids, that's wallet territory. Sure. It's, it's like saying, uh, I loved this. Uh, I, I, I loved an officer who fell in the line of duty so much that I have his ashes on my mantle. It's like, why? Give those back to his family. Why yeah. are you? It, it starts. Well, to the just photo reflect. is not. No, it's not like that. But it's it's it's, it's a weird kind of intimacy that doesn't seem necessarily wholly appropriate. I'm just saying it's a bizarre. It's a bizarre lie. Speaking of bizarre New York-related developments. Yep. Odd oddballs all the way down. Uh, the latest news out of the De Blasio camp is that the De Blasios are not going to be getting divorced, but they will be opening up their marriage and seeing other people. Now, I saw some folks making jokes along the lines of this was a long game for Mayor de Blasio, who basically 
Stan from here just so that he could wrangle it, that he could get a news post sent to everybody in New York announcing that he was single and ready to mingle on the market. Many people. How old is he? Um, He's 62. I would think, well, what do I do? I would think re-entering the dating pool in your 60s would not be an experience one would be eager to take on, but who knows You know what's going on in people's lives. Maybe it's not motivated by him, maybe it is, maybe it's mutual, who knows. Not our business, just kind of funny, so we're pointing it out, but sure, I mean, them all the happiness the, separately the, or together or <laughs> in whatever construction they want happiness. Uh, so the uh, part of the speculation has to do with the fact that when de Blasio uh, met his wife uh, McCray, she was a lesbian and I wasn't bi like didn't date men at all, but she made was, his pitch. Oh. You know, in, in really, he, he got her. You know, <laughs> oh, he 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 did, he, he did the that. thing that many men claim that they can do, uh, and very few are successful. She but was... he he flipped her, um, but apparently not uh, in a permanent way because they're opening their relationship back up again at this time. Wait, wait, wait! I, I missed that detail. She she was she was self described as as lesbian. Yes, at the time that they met. Hmm. Okay then. Well, that's that's uh, certainly interesting. Yeah, I mean they have children. They have children together. Yes, right? two. Uh, Dante and I forget the daughter's name. But there, there was a part of why this story also kind of went viral is that the nature of the New York Times alert was so specific. It specifically read: Bill De Blasio, the former New York City mayor, and Shirley McRae are separating. They are not planning to divorce. They said, but will date other people and continue to share the Park Slope townhouse. So I think that was just evocative of maybe it's like this much, too much detail about their lives, kind of the image of them still living in the house and bringing other people Whatever back to the people, house. Whatever people, no that. judgment here. I don't care. It, it just felt like, why are we learning this? Why well, do I need to learn this? the New York this? Times told us, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm sure they had to tell the New York Times yeah. uh, on some level. The New maybe York they Times, didn't have to. They could have just I mean, done but what they do. I think that in their defense, I think you have, I mean, they gave, there was a whole article about it. You know, they gave... Um, no, but I think if they didn't explain the decision they were mutually coming to about how they were going to handle the separation, sure. it would be difficult for the public. The public would see them out dating other people, know that they live together, and presume that there was infidelity. So I do understand why they had to disclose all aspects of the shift in their relationship, but it does read a little like uh, TMI, I guess. <laughs> For the public to get on your phone. Again, no judgment. People can live in uh, whatever polycules or multiples of whatever if they want. I don't. I'm not gonna. I don't care at all. Your business, as long as it's it's, it's the public's it. business. They told the New York Times. Yeah. Um, it began with an offhand remark. Why aren't you lovey dovey anymore, Mr. De Blasio, the former New York City mayor, asked, according to uh, Miss McRae, his wife. It moved quickly, both said, into the sort of urgently searching dialogue that had been necessary for years but avoided until that moment a full accounting of their relationship, what they wanted, what they were not getting. You can't fake it, Ms. McRae said Tuesday from their kitchen table. You can feel when things are off, Mr. de Blasio said, and you don't want to live that way. Was, was the New York Times just uh, hanging around as this <laughs> This isn't live. This is them recollecting an what they said about it? Yeah, yeah in, in an interview with the New York Times. Nobody, nobody cares that much. I, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> they got me. I'm hooked. I care. <laughs> whether it's my business and whether I care are two different, uh, two different questions. Um, but that's, that's the she, story. Uh, she, are they similarly aged? 
Uh, I believe so. I think they were both kind of in the organizing activist mm. space when they when they met. Mm. And they had a, like a friendship because they were kind of working together towards shared uh, goals. And that's how it evolved. I feel like I was just seeing a lot of divorces on social media. Um, Ricky Martin yes, getting I, divorced from yes, his husband. I did see that. And uh, someone else, but I can't remember who I saw. Yeah, well, feel free to read that entire piece in the New York Times. That points it gives some background at the beginning of the relationship. They married back in, in uh, 1994 um, with two gay men officiating before reception with a super freak dance break and a heap of cannoli. I mean, this thing is detailed <laughs> and very colorful. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. More rising after this. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife and Hollywood actress Cheryl Hines recently joined Russell Brand in conversation about his 2024 campaign. Let's take a listen to some of that. If you do that, as soon as I get in office, I'm going uh, to issue a series of executive orders and national security orders ordering government agencies and government officials, any federal government employee, uh, to to refrain from any kind of participation in any friends of uh, censorship. I'm going to restore the Smith-Munt Act, which was the act that made it illegal uh, for intelligence agencies or military agencies to propagandize American people. I'm going to bring the big tech uh, titans, the, the big CEOs, into a meeting in the White House and I'm going to have a you know an all day or two day or three day seminar if we have to, to figure out how we can do you know how uh, we can uh, how they are going to continue to run their sites and to make sure you know that things that are, are not protected speech like the yeah, and you know in, in incitement of violence those are not protected speech under the First Amendment those legally you can censor or fraud you can censor. Uh, without it being you know, incursions on the First Amendment or for free speech rights, I'm not going to ask them how do we do this, and you know, and the and the backstop is if they can't do it, you know, then I would consider making them common carriers, where it's illegal to censor. I don't want to do that. I think it's better, much better for them to stay in the, um, you know, as private companies, uh, but they need to recognize the fact that they are now the public square. You, you know, that that is just the reality of our time. If you want to talk to large groups of Americans, you got to do it. Those are the only places you can do it. Hmm. All right. So we had some really specific um, policy proposals for what he would do to address some of these speech concerns if he were president of the United States. He first mentioned the Smith-Munt Act, which was is an act that was passed back in 1945 that prohibits uh, the American government, these intelligence agencies, from broadcasting programs, uh, propaganda programs, basically, to the American public. I'm not sure what he means by bring it back. Uh, it doesn't currently prohibit the entirety of the executive branch from distributing information at home, just the State Department and the Broadcasting Board of Governors. So maybe he means uh, expand it in some way. But that was one point. And then the other thing he said was that he's going to have the tech company CEOs come together and ask them about ways that they can 
um, manage content moderation in a way that is not censorious, and if they aren't able to come up with solutions, making them common carriers. And I wonder what you think of that. Right. So the first thing he brought up, I don't know very much about the Smith-Munt Act, but I absolutely agree with that approach. From my standpoint, the right approach is to constrain the government officials, do the constraining on that end, because that is um, that is not going to run into First Amendment problems itself. There's greater license for the government to constrain its own employees. They're public employees. They work for us. They're paid for by our tax dollars, et cetera. We, we can have policy that impacts them. The policies that impact Right, and and RK Jr. does acknowledge there that they're private companies, so we have to, you know, we we call it censorship, and I I think you can make a good case that it is censorship when it's motivated by the government, and you know you can colloquially call it censorship if you want, but the fact is that it doesn't violate the law when, you know, if Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of their, you know, you, you might hate what they're doing. But it's their sure. platform, and they can do it. And you can say there should be a different regulatory regime. You can say all sorts of things, but they do have the right to do it. I don't know about hauling. To my mind, there's already been a lot of hauling tech executives before government, and that that has been the problem in the first place, is that, is that almost government has their ear too much. So I, like, I appreciate, obviously, wanting to, encourage, wanting to talk to them about what the problem is or you know, why they feel so inclined toward these policies. But they have, in the past, been inclined toward that because government is ordering them around. So it, it, we have to be careful not to duplicate the exact same conditions mm. that led to the initial problem. We're like, I, you know, I hate that the FBI or CISA or whoever is constantly telling them what to do. So I'm going to tell them what to do even harder in the other direction. And we just need to stop telling them what to well, do. Well, I mean, sure. I, I hear your concern. I really do. But I also think that what he would say is, well, I'm not, I'm not saying that I would get them in a room to pressure them to do anything at all, but to give them an opportunity to come up with solutions to a problem that people like Elon Musk have said that they too have identified and struggled with. And RK Jr. has said very glowing things about Elon Musk. I think he used the word hero or some other similar sort of honorific in reference to him. And I think that he seems to believe, I don't share RFK Jr.'s uh, credulity with respect to Elon Musk's ability to handle this problem, but he seems to believe that if given the opportunity to consult with other tech people and really put their brain to the apply their brain power to the equation that they can figure out how to do content moderation in a way that is smart and fair genuinely fair and perhaps very transparent but absent that and here's here's I think the kind of big news here absent that he says let's make tech companies common carriers so treat them like the phone company or you know the the I guess the inter internet generally speaking and say that you have to, you're, the, the, the speech standards are that of the public forum, of the sidewalk, that you can't uh, tell people that they have to pay more for a long distance call mm -hmm. if you're the Bell t Telephone Company just because you hate their political yeah. views. You know, Republicans don't have to pay more for Verizon just because I, the CEO of Verizon maybe hates Republicans. I, I mean, I've heard this idea before. I've act Honestly, I've heard it mostly proposed by Republicans. Maybe Democrats are interested in it too because they're, I guess, kind of defenders of public utilities in general. I don't see how this would ever work. I mean, first of all, I, I think our very pro-First Amendment, pro-allowing like corporate speech Supreme Court is just going to shut down any effort to like forcibly turn a private um, company that is a, that is a 
platform and also a producer of content into like into a public utility. Also, I mean, their business models, it's fundamentally different from the telephone company. I mean, their, their business models, maybe, and Twitter's moving away from this, but the other companies, they sell ads. They create a, curate, a curated user environment to sell ads. They're not... They're, they're not treating everyone equally on purpose because they're trying to, again, it's a curated experience. It's mm -hmm. curated based on what your interests are, based on things you select, based on things they select for you. We argue about the process, and there's a lot of legitimate gripes about it, but it's just fundamentally different. It, also, if you make it, tr if it's truly the public square, in, in the same sense that the sidewalk mm -hmm. is the public square, you can draw swastikas all over the mm -hmm. sidewalk. These have been carefully litigated cases. The, ex the exceptions for free speech are few and far between. I think you technically can. There's nothing in Twitter's current pos uh, policy that bans the posting of swastikas, which but is why I people had issue with the uh, uh, Kanye West right, banning. There's a whole lot of behavior that we find abusive and obnoxious yeah. that is moderated on social media that's not really partisan or political or, or objected to. The parody account could, issues. But you um, couldn't do this in the, in the public square. Elon Musk said that you know spamming people under their tweets and calling them cis was hate yeah. speech and that he would ban that on Twitter. Certainly that wouldn't be banned in the public square. Can you imagine the draconian world where if you walk down the street and refer to someone as cisgender, you would be uh, censored, exactly. rounded up? People think of the public square as this... this Thinking of like a town hall event where like the somebody gets up on stage and they speak and then they speak, but the, the public square is where you burn witches. The, the public square <laughs> is a is a raucous cacophony of. I mean, it, again, it's been carefully litigated at the level of the Supreme Court that the Nazis can march through saying Nazi things. The Westboro Baptist Church yeah. can protest at military funerals. The most abhorrent, vile speech is protected and should be. The government should not have the right to censor that speech in the public square. But these are private platforms. We want the. I think we want them to operate with something approaching free speech, but there's a lot of stuff that you want to allow them the freedom to moderate to make the experience there more enjoyable. And I think if you if you morph that and force them to have the exact same standards as the sidewalk, a lot of people will be like, oh, wait a minute, that means we can't take action against this, this, and this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We had, you know, these more Wild Wild West social media platforms like 4chan and 8chan and Reddit, where it's more of it's more everything goes and there's less moderation. And a lot of normies never really engaged in those platforms because they want their their interest and in what they want to see very closely aligns with what the advertisers' interests were. I mean, there's a reason why the advertisers are, right. are 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 drawing the lines where they are, because there is a maximalist, a desire to have a maximalist usage right. um, so that they can get more eyeballs on whatever thing that they're trying to sell. And for someone like Elon Musk, who ultimately did buy this company to earn profit or at least recoup his investment, fundamentally, I wonder if that's going to put him at odds with someone like um, yeah. RFK Jr., who he's been very friendly toward up until this point. I mean, RFK Jr. is offering this off-ramp, saying, well, I would love to give you guys an opportunity to figure this out yourselves. But they've obviously been trying to do that this whole time, this, this whole time. And it, it, it seems a little bit, if you look at it in that lens, like a threat, yeah. like get your act together or I'm going to make you a common carrier, treat you as a common carrier, and basically strip your ability to do content moderation that would enable you to make money off of this $44 billion investment. Yeah, we don't want to get rid of content moderation at all. We want to call out biased or unfair or hypocritical content moderation, that sort of thing, or, or content moderation that is being done you know, at, at, the, at the behest or the ordering of government forces or something. We want more transparency around it. We don't want to get rid of it entirely. I, I think 
So if you posted my home address on Twitter, somebody did, some crazy stalker, mm. I would report it. It would get taken down because mm -hmm. it violates the policies. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure if somebody was shouting, you know, where I lived, again, in the public square, if, if it was accompanied by a violent threat or something like, let's go to Robbie's house and, and, and kill him on, at this time, then you could do something. But if you're just telling people where I lived, I don't think you could do anything about that from a First Amendment free speech public square perspective. Right. So again, there are different standards here. Some, not always for bad reason. Yeah. Um, I think we have another clip we wanted to play. Brandt also questioning Cheryl Hines, RFK Jr.'s wife, about how her views align with her husband's. And, and also, have you sort of managed your answers for how you're going to deal with stuff like, oh, do you agree with Bobby on controversial issues like ending the war, certain medical matters that I won't mention while we're on YouTube? How, how, are, you, how are you dealing with it, Cheryl? Well, I like to just take it as it comes. I like to be honest about my feelings and my thoughts. And uh, we really do align on everything. Um, the way the information gets out sometimes is um, not how I would do it. So, <laughs> so that's where it gets a little, uh, you know, I have to take a moment and... Um, take it minute by minute, day by day. Ask her if it's easier being married to me or Larry David. Which one? So this is an interesting question. I think a lot of the media, the mainstream media attempts to discredit RFK Jr. have focused on the idea that the normal people in his life don't support him. So they said, well, even your family doesn't agree with you and has written this op-ed distancing themselves from your um, uh, vaccine views. And Cheryl Hines, because she is a popular actress and a Californian and someone who is presumed to have the quote-unquote right view of things, um, has been a part of that effort. Um, she... Uh, condemned his remarks uh, about vaccines and Anne Frank, I think, that he made during the um, the uh, anti-war protest last here year. In exactly. And so there have been these moments where she's distanced themselves from his views. But it does seem here that she says, we agree on most things uh, and just characterize that as a difference in approach. Uh, what do you make sure. of this? It sounded to me, I mean, she was pretty nonspecific there. And honestly, I understand that. Yeah. The, the political figure's wife, spouse, partner, whatever, doesn't doesn't have to offer their own opinions if they don't want to. You don't have to agree with everything your spouse or other family members think. It, so I'm reading between the lines. It sounded to me like she substantially does agree with him, but maybe, again, I'm, just, I'm guessing based on that response. It's really hard to tell. Maybe Here's he doesn't she appreciate... Um, some of the venues he's had to, he's gone to, to explain those views or other people he's consorted, you know, sometimes you can be, maybe she likes the view, but doesn't like some of the hyperbole that well, accompanies it. I don't know. Here's what she said in a New York Times profile, uh, that was published, I think just last month. Uh, she said, I see both sides of the vaccine situation. There's one side that feels scared if they don't get the vaccine, and there's the side that feels scared if they do get the vaccine because they're not sure if the vaccine is safe. And I understand that. So if Bobby is standing up and saying, well, are we sure that they're safe and every vaccine has been tested properly? That doesn't seem mm -hmm. too much to ask. That seems like the right question to be asking. And if he's saying it should be your choice, not 
you know, the government's choice. That's the thing for me. But anyway, yeah, that's a perfectly benign statement. Yeah, all right. So. Well, let us know what you think about this and more specifically about RFK Jr.'s uh, policy proposals on the question of social media and censorship down below. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. A man was caught with a heavy arsenal of weapons near Barack Obama's home, and he apparently got the address after it was shared online by former President Donald Trump. This according to a court filing. Federal prosecutors noted the link while pushing for the 37-year-old suspect, Taylor Toronto, to be held in custody until trial. The filing says on June 29, 2023, former President Donald Trump posted what he claimed was the address of former President Barack Obama on the social media platform Truth Social. Toronto then used his own Truth Social account to repost the address. Toronto then started live streaming from his van while driving through the Calorama neighborhood of Washington, D.C., which is where Barack Obama lives. The filing said uh, that it was a neighborhood with restricted access, protected heavily by the United States Secret Service. So, so the story is uh, Donald Trump—so they're being a little—it's it's a little bit more complicated than the prosecutors are making it sound like. Donald Trump truthed a screenshot <laughs> of an article written by uh, the Schlafly brothers, who are conservative, very right-wing conservative writers, activists. Their mother was Phyllis Schlafly, that talks about the war on Donald Trump. This is from years ago. 2017. And then it's, it's a long article. And in that screenshot, th that article does, it is irresponsible to do this, obviously, give the exact address allegedly of, but I assume it is the address. It's no, I believe it is the address. I mean, it's a, it's a no-known that the Obamas moved to Colorado. Yeah, we know what neighbor, I, like, I, I, <laughs> I knew, we knew within pretty certainty, like, what couple streets it, yeah, it, it, they're Yeah, whenever on, I'm but, walking around Colorado, I say, hey, Obama lives here. Like, I do yeah. it, like, as a knee-jerk instinct. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, this is where Obama exactly. I didn't know exactly where, but I, there's a town and country spread that I'm looking at uh, about their house and the purchase there. I mean, I think we all know that they live in Colorado because it was widely yeah. reported, and there were conversations about how much they spent yeah. on the house at the time. And that they and, were staying in D.C. rather than, you know, decamping for right. greener pastures or getting out of the game. Right. So, so I, that address is in the text. And the, the, so the article is about Trump's first 100 days and right. is complimentary of him. It doesn't seem like Donald Trump shared that particular section purposefully to right. share the address, although we can't know not. what's in, in his brain, but it doesn't seem like that was his right. point. And I do think that some of the any accusation that this was kind of a targeted uh, violence on the behalf of Donald Trump is undermined by how many other publicly available resources and journals, uh, magazines, et cetera, also share where the Obamas live. Yeah. It, this was not a state secret. Right. It's very silly to, um, yeah, to, to lay this, the blame for this at Donald Trump, which seems to be what a lot of the media coverage, so this happened yesterday or last evening, there was media coverage of it on cable news last night. That was the thrust of, um, I saw, I think, Maggie Haberman talking with Anderson Cooper about it on CNN. It was all about how, oh, it's so irresponsible, you know, who's monitoring his, on truth, you know, on Twitter, at least some people would be checking because he's in the administration, he had people helping, but on Truth Social, he's just totally untethered from reality and he's able to do these utterly irresponsible things. Now, obviously, the actions of the alleged actions of Taranto, the suspect here, are in fact egregious. And it, and there was a, I'm reading this Axios article, where did it go? This long history of um, uh, things they could have and should have. So Taranto had been on law enforcement's radar for making various threats 
before. Prosecutors allege he threatened to blow up the National Institute of Standards and Technology and warn McCarthy, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, that you can't stop what's coming, mm -hmm. that he entered an elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, where near where Jamie Raskin lives and made threats to the congressman, um, and that there was an open warrant out for his arrest uh, with respect to his behavior on January his 6th. His participation in January so 6th. So there was yeah. already, he, so basically they already should have, or maybe we're building a case or we're you know, surveilling him in some way and maybe should have pulled the trigger on that, to use a terrible phrase here, earlier. Um, but uh, but yeah, he you know drove through the neighbor, I guess, casing the neighborhood with weapons and um, yeah. Has and been on Telegram, the messaging app, he apparently wrote, "We got these losers surrounded. See you in hell, Podestas and Obamas," uh, referring to John Podesta, who was the chief of staff. Sure. Um, yeah. So this is you know scary and, and unfortunate for the Obamas, anyone being targeted in, in, in this way. Sure. Uh, the, the question about whether or not this would have been caught on Twitter as opposed to Truth Social, it was also a screen grab, so not searchable. Right. Uh, so it's, I'm a little curious. And the text curious. was saw, I think we put the post up there. You, you had to, you would have had to really scrutinize to, to want to read very closely this post to see that it, it has the exact... And obviously uh, this guy did. Yeah, and so, sure. so I'm noticing that in a lot of these um, write-ups about com uh, the Obamas buying this house, I'm seeing another one in Curbed, which is a... But do they give the exact address? The, this, is just... the, this is the point I'm about to make. Uh, so I'm seeing one in Curbed, which is a, a real estate uh, magazine. But they do, although they have the listing and they have many pictures of the exterior interior of the house, they don't say the specific address. Now, I will say, if you were a motivated person, you could easily. The Calorama is not such not, a big neighborhood no, that you couldn't walk around a few blocks and you figure knew what it out. The house looked like you would absolutely figure it out. Exactly. So that's neither here nor there. I don't want to minimize the fact that Trump posting that did make it easier. But I think, if anything, the onus is on the Shafleys for gratuitously including for sure. the address in the article in the first place. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it was remarkable how much of it. That's why we were checking before we yeah. did the segment. Because the way, and also the way the media has made it sound, it's like he just tweet or truth, like, you know, the Obamas live here, here's the address or something, yeah. which, uh, which is not at all the case. It's not close to what happened. Right. Um, also, if he had done that, I, I thought I would have remembered a news cycle about him specifically posting the address. Yeah, I mean like, that would be big news if he incited. He literally I mean, incited people noticed, yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it's uh, sounds like a <laughs> the the per, the person in in uh, that we're talking about sounds like certainly someone who should have been on law enforcement who was on law enforcement radar, and uh, you know, and the the Obamas need a certain amount of security. They have so that's a gated street, right? And there's a there's a police well, car it's like on a the block. It seems like at the end of a street, a kind of a cul-de-sac, and the back of the house doesn't face another street. It face now. I'm just maybe I'm doxing the Obamas. I don't mean to, but obviously I googled it to yeah. to double check the everything was accurate here in the story. It was exactly where and I it does it seem was. like <laughs> it seems like a house that is more easily protected than, protected than others because it's got some distance from other houses around mm -hmm. it. In the Google Street image, there's a police car parked out front. Interestingly, Vogue wrote an article uh, back when they bought the house in 2017 titled, Why You Shouldn't Worry About the Obamas Living in Colorado, Washington, D.C. Um, 
they stayed in the first place so that their daughter could finish school. But there were some concerns about the security. I think people were wondering what he was going to do, given he had so many, I think, a really unprecedented number of threats to his life when he was in office. So people were wondering, well, how is this even going to work? Um, apparently, uh, FDR also lived in the area. Warren G. Harding also lived uh, in the area. It's it's there's a like a, a tradition in some ways of of presidents. Herbert Hoover lived in Colorado. Well, Harding lived in the area not after he was president. He died. He was killed. I'm just reading off the top of this article as we're having this conversation. Before, right? He was, but um, not it was killed, just died. He died in office. Uh, but yeah, killed, I think died. that this is a secure, you know, obviously they have an yeah. enormous amount of security. Nobody can remain. I mean, people know where Beyonce lives. People know where every celebrity lives. I mean, yeah. these things are, there's helicopters whirring over Malibu and paparazzi taking photos. I mean, the security comes from the security, not from the anonymity of it all. It's, I think the real people to worry about is folks who are not rich enough to afford security, but who might be a target regardless. In another segment, I said that this is an example of a difference between the public square and social media, that on social media, if people share your private address, mm -hmm. I think you can get them to take it down. But again, and, and, and I presume, I could be wrong, I presume if the Obamas had, well, this was Truth Social, so different, but on, if it had Twitter, it had appeared, they probably could have gotten them to get those tweets taken down for containing the address, but. Yeah, uh, maybe. maybe. Or maybe they're making a liar out of me. <laughs> maybe it's not true. More rising right after this. The boyfriend of popular actress, singer, and online personality Kiki Palmer is the subject of Twitter backlash after he publicly shamed the mother of his child for what she wore to an Usher concert. Darius Dalton quote-tweeted a video depicting Palmer being serenaded by the R&B crooner with the comment, it's the outfit though, you're a mom. Dalton later doubled down after being pressed to clarify, tweeting, quote, we live in a generation where a man of the family doesn't want the wife and mother to his kids to showcase booty cheeks to please others, and he gets told how much of a hater he is. This is my family and my representation. I have standards and morals to what I believe I rest my case. I think he's going to be sleeping on the couch. Now, <laughs> Kiki Palmer has yet to publicly comment on the family drama. However, hours after Dalton made the Twitter comments, she posted these photos in the outfit in question on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Yes, she did. <laughs> Look. So, Brie, tell me what's going on here. I don't know any of these people. The reason people are so up in arms is because Kiki Palmer is one of the most likable and liked people on the internet. She is unproblematic. She is wholesome. She is talented. She is hilarious. She's the kind of person you hand the mic and you put them on the red carpet and they make moment after moment after moment. She is so charismatic that I went to look up one famous Kiki Palmer meme and was confronted with a BuzzFeed article saying that there's 13 Kiki Palmer memes. She goes on the Hot Wings show. She's memeable. She's asked by Vogue to identify a picture of famous people and when she doesn't realize who Dick Cheney is and says, I'm sorry to this man. I do not know this man. I think we actually have that meme. Do we have that one we can play for the, for the people? But your impression was so good, I'm sure. Down the street, I wouldn't... I wouldn't know a thing. Sorry to this man. I hate to say it, I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. <laughs> I mean, he could be walking down the street, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know a thing. Sorry to this man. 
I hate to say okay. that. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> I yeah, mean, we're it's, all walking around sure. saying sorry to this man it's now. The, it's the, I don't know her. I don't know, exactly, yeah. exactly. She had this really cute moment with Timothy Chalamet since they were both child stars on the red carpet where he's like, don't you remember we once did a photo shoot together? And like he's like rizzing her and it's like really adorable. So the point is that we've been following her since she was sure. a child. But She's, who's this this boyfriend? Who so is she, he? we were very happy for we, okay. like we're her like we're family. All, yeah. The public who likes Kiki Palmer were very pleased when she seemed to find a nice, you know, attractive man, settled down with him, had a baby. She's been posting about her baby and her pregnancy and how happy she is, how much she loves her new post-baby body, how much her skin is cleared up, how she's thriving and happy. And honestly, we just there's a lot of negativity in the world, and we all had vicarious joy through her in this relationship. But then here he comes. <laughs> here he comes, this man who we only know exists because of his relationship with Kiki Palmer. He is not an independent celebrity. I'm not trying to say anybody's nobody because everybody's somebody. But we're not all the same amount of somebody. <laughs> and this man decided, as when he saw this video of Kiki Palmer on stage at this Usher concert, which apparently is very good and everybody's been going to, um, you know, you know, having a little like fangirl She's moment. dancing with Usher. Yeah, like on stage, you yeah. go to a concert, you're brought up on stage, it's a celebrity, it's a singer that you've loved since you were a kid. You know, she's like, oh my God, Usher, and they're like, you know. And apparently, I don't know, her her partner can't separate real life from just fangirling mm -hmm. at a concert, and is so jealous that he's speaking out publicly against her. And here's also why people are upset. One is that he makes, makes this claim that the issue is about her outfit and being too revealing, but he has posted pictures of her, for example, like holding the baby after, shortly after birth without clothes on, like showing off her pregnancy body and things like that, that aren't like sexual pictures, but are pictures where she's like almost nude, right? So it's clearly not about the exposure. It's about him being jealous of Usher the man, but he's trying to play it off with this respectability politics, talking about, well, a wife's role is X, Y, and D. And people have also pointed out that they're not married. And how are you going to make these kinds of arguments when you're not even half a husband? That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> um, it, it is a, it's a revealing, I mean, in those pictures, it's more revealing from the other side, from the back. Um, if he has a problem with it, though, here's the issue. You can't tweet about this. Obviously, do not have any sort of confrontation with your partner, with your woman, about what she's wearing in public on social media. You never do that. Um, Yes. Never so, going to end up a husband that, if, if, that's your, if that's your behavior. That is such a good point, and I wish I could find this video quickly as well. But there was an interview that she did with him where she uh, specifically uh, was talking about people who talk about their relationship out loud. And the, rep the, re the reporter, the, the podcaster, I think, was like, well, what if, you, what if somebody came up to you and was like, I saw your man doing this, that, and the other? She's like, I wouldn't even see her. I wouldn't, it's none of anybody's business. I would pretend like I didn't see the news and we would handle that at home. Like, That's, I would never publicly talk about my relationship business. Yeah. And so this feels like a real betrayal. Like, he knows that's her attitude toward the world. She, he knows that, presumably, she's the one that's exposed as the famous person, and he chose instead to be dramatic on the internet. And her non-response, where she just posted some more pictures and, like, has not said anything about it, I think is 
good form, par for the course, indicative of exactly what everybody likes. So she is not going to be messy, but it's clear that she did not approve of him, that she's not going to be cowed by whatever his preferences are with respect to her personal attire. It's very funny. I saw, uh, so I was trying to, I saw this trending on Twitter and I was trying to figure out what was going I was trying to reason it backward from, unfortunately, I didn't know who Kiki Palmer was. I, I haven't seen Nope. Um, is a scandal in and of itself, scandal. Robbie. So I, I didn't, I was trying to like get through the memes and then I came across one that I actually, I remembered this clip. I haven't seen like every episode of this show. I was a fan of it, but I'm, I'm not, like I haven't seen it in a million years. The Boondocks. Yes. You know what it is. You've yes, seen it. Of course. Um, there's a really kind of apt scene of a character, she's she's on a date with her her boyfriend at a restaurant, and Usher is there, and she's like an Usher super, super fan, <laughs> and they, Usher comes over, and they talk, and they they show the passage of time by the boyfriend's like ice cream sundae, just they show it melting <laughs> until it's just all over the table, and they're clearly, and then they're gonna go out together or something, and and the waiter uh, is like. It's a tough break, man. <laughs> I mean, is Usher the person of all people to be destroying male egos? I guess. I guess. I mean, Usher. Usher I, look, cool. I love Usher. You know, me and Usher are pretty, are much closer in age than I, I Kiki Palmer. Our, and our, our thickest thieves. <laughs> Usher. You and Usher. No, Usher is Come 44. Uh, Kiki Palmer, uh, I think, is a great deal. I think she's in her early 30s? How? No, she's 29. She's 29. So, like, to, to, to Usher, to Kiki Palmer, Usher is, like, seems like the, the right guy she listened to in elementary school. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, Usher is, like, middle school, high school, college for me. Like, yeah. you know, oh, you're big college. Oh, you're too young. Like, she, to, it's, like, it's like me oh. going to a Michael Jackson concert and fangirling. Like, it's not sexual, <laughs> you know? I just love, I love Prince, I love Michael Jackson, I love whomever it is. It's just a weird thing to lose your marbles about so publicly on the internet. One other fun twist for a Politico like yourself. Do you remember Herschel Walker's son? Christian Walker. Yes, remember course. when Herschel Walker was running for governor of Georgia, uh, a Senate in Georgia. Finally a name I remember <laughs> in this whole story, yes. And his son turned on him at the last minute. He had been a kind of a viral TikTok star, conservative, gay, but like holding it down, saying you can be both things at the same time. And then he turned on Herschel Walker in the last minute uh, over the way that Herschel Walker had treated his mother and been an, a less than exemplary father uh, in his view. Well, he's been making a soft pivot to being a mainstream kind of cultural commentator. And he did a take on this, which many people were like, well, I can't believe I'm agreeing with uh, Christian Walker. But he really uh, astutely disposed of uh, Mr. Darius and uh, vindicated Kiki and gave a really good rundown of the situation. If anybody is interested in watching mm. that, he'll turn. <laughs> I love to see it. Wow, this is... Uh... Just, just huge news. I mean, this was all over social media. I was like, what is it's going on? huge. People were real worked up about this. people love one. Kiki Palmer. Do yourselves a favor and familiarize yourself with this woman's work. She is an utter delight. Oh, and I hope wow. she finds the happiness in her relationship that she's bringing to the public at large. Well, I hope her and the boyfriend uh, work this out yeah. by rem remembering to never tweet. Was it, did he start this on Twitter? When did he go off on her? Yes, on? honey, he did. <laughs> never tweet. Not good. Well, that does it for us for this week on Rising. It was a short little week for us in person because of the holiday, but Amber Athey and Jessica Burbank will be back tomorrow to bring you a very special Friday episode of Rising. <laughs>
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content, especially the Kiki Palmer-related content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Adios. Bye-bye.